This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always supported President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, hes it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look, we won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. Here we go. Here we go. What's happening, folks? What is happening? Hopefully you're doing well. Hopefully you're enjoying at least in this uh, side of the, the planet, this hemisphere. Uh, you're enjoying some summer and some sunshine, some rays of light. All those good things. I guess in the southern hemisphere, y'all are experiencing um, winter, right? Or fall, right? Right. That's uh, that's what Australia right now. It's fall and then. I guess winter is upon y'all. That would be a trip. That would be a trip. I'm not going to lie. Having always lived in the northern hemisphere of the planet. um, Yeah, the the cycles for seasons uh, just, uh, you know, have been January is always cold. June is typically warm. September is usually the start of fall. So, yeah, that would be a trip. Um, Unless I'm seeing it wrong, right? It's like, you know, the seasons flip. Um, with that, uh, you know, and that, I mean, and that's a, a large portion, you know, of the world as I'm thinking about it. I mean, that's, uh, large swaths of Africa. Um, of course, you know, uh, it, well, let's see what else, what else we have. We got South America as well. Um, so yeah, that's Southern hemisphere, right? Man, that's, yeah, that'd be a trip. That'd be a trip. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm trying to think the furthest South, I think down I've gone is, um, Mexico city. Um, or maybe Hawaii. I don't know. I, I got to get out of the globe. I'm bad on geography, but either, either way, um, I am, uh, definitely, yeah, definitely. That hits me every now and then like, oh, huh. It'd be, it'd be a trip to be in December and have it hot. Although <laughs> with climate change, uh, I guess we're all fixing to experience December and being hot, um, and all that. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, welcome to Profane Faith, folks. Um, I'm just rambling here. Um, your host, Dan White Hodge, and uh, good to have you back. Hopefully you are uh, listening. If this is your first time, like I say every week, welcome. Good to have you. Check out previous episodes. Um, if you are a regular, I appreciate the support and time. I know I've had some pretty steady regulars um, coming on and uh you know just supporting the show so i appreciate the feedback the emails uh the retweets all those things are always 
good to have. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I will continue to take all that and all that good stuff. Um, I'm excited about our guest this week uh, and just where uh, she finds herself theologically, politically, um, and all that good stuff. But before we get into that, there's been a few things happening that I have wanted to get into that just we haven't really had the time. I know in the last episode talked a little bit about just um, some of the annoyances, if you will, that I have in regards to, you know, how we prioritize equity and equality. Um, you know, when it comes to race tends to be at the top, but then when it comes to human sexuality that, you know, tends to get a real big back seat. Um, so, um, yeah, just continuing on kind of in that same, um, thought process. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me, uh, I wanted to play another clip for y'all. Uh, this is from Dr. Umar Johnson. And if you know, Oh, excuse me. Uh, if you know who he is, um, you already know that, you know, his his stuff is interesting only because um, it, for a few things. I think I, I appreciate what he has to say, you know, for and about black people. Um, I think some of his other stuff, you know, can be a little bit out there. But then again, you know, I, that the same can be said about me. <laughs> Right. I'm sure there's people like, yeah, I appreciate his stuff on X, Y, Z, but man, he's out to lunch on this other stuff. So I guess that's, you know, that's just kind of the way things are. But I wanted to play you a clip um, and him talking about diversity and multiculturalism. Now, let me give you a little context here. So this is an ideological thought that circled around, particularly in the black community um, for a long time. This is this is nothing new. Uh, this is just a little clip off of like Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And you know, if you if you're doing anything on, you know, if you if you're doing your social history from TikTok and Instagram, uh, stop, okay? Because uh, those are just snippets. Um, those are just little clips of things that may or may not sound good. Um, but yeah, this is a this is an ideological structure, a trope, if you will, uh, that has been within the African American community and particularly the African American, uh, just kind of overall socio political thought and imagination uh, in regards to, you know, how we view integration, how do we view, um, uh, you know, the, our, our own positionality, if you will, um, you know, in the pantheon of the American mind. Um, how do we view our own positionality just in politics um, and just the structure of this country? Uh, you know, so there's been an ongoing uh, debate uh, in regards to, you know, should black folks, you know, segregate themselves and and some have like we're going to we're going to live primarily in black neighborhoods. We're going to have a sense of a black community. Uh, I've talked about this on the show before uh, in regards to, you know, black, for example, Black Wall Street, um, you know, the, the power that that of community that was coming together uh between really the 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 turn of the 20th century uh up until about uh the late 20th century and, I, and by late i mean maybe the 1970s uh once the black family was integrated uh and disrupted and disconnected you know through a very variety of programs whether it was the vietnam war whether it was um 
the welfare and you know systemic process uh whether it was just drugs whether it was gangs whether it was the, you know the growth the onset so much stuff happened between 1968 and 1975 uh to the black community i, I talk about this in my book homeland insecurity um so you can go read that and go check it out um but there was a lot that happened that shifted the way the black community operated and by the time you got to the 80s uh with the ushering in of crack cocaine and the war on drugs uh just it it slanted we've not recovered from that uh as a whole um, and you know, and I've, again, I've talked about this before and just in, uh, in regards to just where black money is and where it stays. Now I'll be the first to say, I don't think capitalism is going to save black people. It can't, it is, it is, it is a system not designed for us or by us. It is a system that inherently, okay. Uh, wants to, you know, destroy uh i will use that I know that's strong language uh but i it, that wants to destroy uh the very thing that would make us who we are in regards to collectivism uh community uh the idea that you know we should you know each one reach one you know that is not a goal of capitalism uh, uh you know and i know maybe some of you purists out there be like oh but it, you these things can no 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 the goal of capitalism is to is to is to grow to take over. Um, I mean, look at the way businesses. I mean, it's it's the game of monopoly, right? You don't play a monopoly to to uh, to help your 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 fellow citizen or your fellow player out. You play monopoly to win, to monopolize the board, to get over there on Broadway and charge somebody an arm and a leg for rent. Uh, that is the ultimate goal, and so that's not going to save us as black folk. Not not our, our history is not connected to capitalism okay um and there's a lot of stuff just with that in and of itself um just capitalism alone but i make that point to say uh that there are some within the african-american community that say we should just leave we should um you know disassociate with these USA, US of A's, right? Uh, James Baldwin talked about this. Uh, W.B. Du Bois talked about this. Uh, even Michael Eric Dyson on some levels, Cornell West and some of his earlier works wrestled with this as well. Um, there's a book, I think Randall Robinson wrote it back in the 90s, talked about talking about leaving America, uh, how, you know, black people should just leave America. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, for a long time, those, those ideas and thoughts didn't, feel right um didn't uh you know didn't necessarily you know jive because you know hey i still had a very colonized mindset to the evangelical uh imagination of what it meant to be together right um but now <laughs> uh i'm a little bit more like man we always come to the table well, not always let me not use pejorative language in that sense of like always but a lot of times we come to the table as black folk, as people of color, um, demanding something, wanting something. And the reality of it is, is that the real work does isn't in the streets. Um, it's in them boardrooms. Uh, so I, 
I want to play for you two clips, really. Uh, but so, so well, let me, let me set up <laughs> Dr. Umar Johnson. I'm kind of all over the place, but there's a lot going on. So um, this clip here is talking about, you know, really the move against diversity. Um, and I've been toying with, you know, putting some material around, you know, what does it mean to be non-multi-ethnic, multicultural? What if we, you know, stick to one another? Now, I, and I don't know what that means, uh, because if we do it in a capitalistic way, um, it's, you know, it's just not going to work. Um, completely. And it, it'll look good on the, on the surface. Um, I'm still curious about what the, um, you know, what the ultimate goal was or the interactions or the day-to-days, if you will, uh, of Black Wall Street. I mean, if y'all have that material, any of you historians out there, I would love uh, to hear that and love to, you know, uh, you know, dive into that. But let me show you this clip or let me let you hear it uh, and see what y'all think. Ready? All right, here we go. We have to stop being multicultural. We have to stop pushing this people of color agenda. We have to stop pushing this racial diversity agenda. All that is a distraction that helps the U.S. government ignore you and give your race, give your resources to all the other non-white groups in America. Nobody likes black people. Not brown, not yellow, not red, not white. We can't seem to get that through our thick head. So we have a bad habit of speaking for all the non-white groups as if we are one. Since when did we become one? Name me an ethnic group that has ever come to America and has fought and struggled for black liberation. You can't name me one. There may have been individuals, yeah. but systemically, no race, no ethnic group, no nationality has ever come here and helped black people. They don't come to help you. They come to replace you. And I'm not saying hate. I'm not saying dislike. Emotion is irrelevant. We have to be political thinkers. We have to be chess players. There's no room for emotion and hate. I'm asking you to understand the world and the reality in which we live because if we do not master the mentality of the slave master, we'll never overcome the slavery. All right. So, um, yeah, some interesting things there in regards to, uh, you know, diversity, inclusion, um, and there's been some interesting, you know, things that have happened over the last, you know, three or four years. I think about who gets help, who gets laws passed. Um, we still don't have true police reform. We still don't have really any centered um, laws that protect us as black people uh, against hate crimes, against what happened to a brother man on the subway, against what happened to vigilante white people who want to just police black bodies? We don't have anything like that in place. Anybody, well, damn, I mean, it's against the law. Stop with all that bullshit. We already know what's going to happen, right? I mean, you think about the guy who who, um, who just killed. I'm, trying, I'm forgetting the cat's name. There's been just so many. Uh, and, and, you know, he's got over a million and a half funds. I think it's like $1.2 million. He's being made into a... Um, Let's see. Uh, let me see. 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 Let me see, let me see. Uh, Jordan Neely. I'm so sorry um, for forgetting his name. But I mean, think about, um, for example, Governor Ron DeSantos tweeted the other day that we stand with good Samaritans like Daniel Penny. Uh, you know, this is the guy who essentially murdered um, uh, this brother on, on the uh, Jordan brother Jordan on the on the subway. Uh, and he said, we you know we stand with Daniel Penny. Let's show uh, this Marine America's got his back. And they've raised millions of dollars for him he's kind of become now the, the right-wing conservative face of 
really stand your ground laws and uh, all those things, right? Second Amendment rights, all all those things, all the bad things uh, that would be. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me uh, just to, to to see this narrative unwind. I guess the biggest question is, is who comes to help black folk? Again, individuals, I get that. I know plenty of them. I have one on the show today, okay? But in general, right, in the systems of things, uh, these are the questions that I ask in regards to equity inclusion, <laughs> right? Because uh, DEI is just a, is, is just a formality. Uh, that's, that's just something to, to, to shut the naysayers up, okay? Uh, DEI uh, doesn't uh, get at what needs to really happen. There are far too many other instances where racism, um, hate, and violence continue to happen, even with strong, quote-unquote, DEI programs. Uh, so I want to be careful about how we label DEI and think about it in such ways. Um, we live in such a time where it's just literally black is in the back seat and you can begin to break down the hierarchy from there, right? Cishet, uh, trans, gay, queer, lesbian. I mean, you just start going down the classes there, um, uh, you know, and, and the different levels and you will see, uh, just the amount of crap and who gets left behind. Um, it seems like, you know, police brutality is such a permanent uh, police violence towards black bodies is such a permanent mainstay in this country. Uh, we don't even think about it really that much anymore. I mean, it's just, it's such a, an ongoing thing that's been going on for a long time. Please don't think this is the first time that it's happening, All right? Study your history, right? This is, this, you know, dates back centuries. Uh, so this isn't uh, anything new. So I asked myself, how do we, what do we do to overcome that? Do we overcome it? Do we just leave? But then you got to ask yourself, where do you go? Okay. Where do we go? Um, yeah, this is, these are some interesting questions, you know, and particularly as it, as it affects the talks around what does it mean to actually affect change in this country? Uh, so much of what we gained over the last 40, 50 years has been taken away uh, just in the last three years. Um, and uh, you can try to change my mind on that, but I, it's not voting rights alone. Uh, I think about just the laws that are being passed in Florida, at least as the at the um, recording of this episode. Uh, you know, the NAACP issues you know travel warnings to Florida, uh, to you know the POCs and LGBTQI plus people. You know, like hey, this is open hostile territory. This is open season on y'all watch where you're going i mean we already know that right there's there's other countries have issued travel you know warnings to people you know traveling to the u.s just because of you know the amount of mass shootings that we have um every time i go out into a public space uh i am i am looking for i'm i'm waiting for shots i'm waiting for something to pop off this is is i'm not making this up i'm not just being this is not just you know inflammatory breaking they literally when i go out into public spaces I am keenly aware uh, of where exits are uh, and of of what's the quickest path, you know, out of here and, you know, uh, and running things in my mind. OK, if you hear gunshots now, like, what are you going to do? Where's your daughter? Where's your where's your spouse? Where's your partner? You know, if you're by yourself, OK, like, where you know, where I go, because I know at the end of the day, 
no one really has my back. <laughs> In terms of a grand societal, systemic ethnicity, no one really has my back. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting space to be. So that's where that's where I find myself right now. Um, and I think I lived for years under the guise of evangelicalism, thinking God was going to somehow work all this out. <laughs> right. Uh, and the excuse that somehow sin is causing all of this. So all we got to do is just get to heaven and we'll be all right. Let's just get to heaven. Um, you know, I, I just don't fall for that anymore. Um, I think that's been a guise. I think that's, and I, and I think, you know, uh, multiculturalism, particularly within religious spaces, I think that, you know, that hurts. It's at the, it's at the detriment, um, of a lot of black folk. Um, now don't hear this. I'm not saying that we need to move to segregation. We all just need to be in our little huts and siloed in. I'm not saying that I am saying though, that, we as black folks been around for a long time. Like Tupac said, we've been we've been America's friend for a long time, <laughs> right? Uh, and you have other countries getting money. You have other countries getting, you know, this aid. I think about all the billions that have been sent to Ukraine, you know, and we're still, right, standing here with our hand out. And now we've gotten to the point in society where white folks are just like, why are y'all always complaining? Shut up, right? <laughs> we fixed that years ago. Why, why are you guys even talking about this stuff anymore? If anything, we're the ones that are, that are being persecuted, right? We, you know, and that, and that's part of the narrative that's happening right now. So some things to think about, some things to process. I don't have answers. Um, I'm just sounding an alarm and, and I don't even necessarily know where I fall on the scale of, Hey, Hey, what does it really mean to be diverse? What does it really mean to live in diversity? Um, yeah, because I, I I am I've seen where we're at right now, and it's and it's diversity hasn't really done much other than to show off, like hey look we got a black president, hey look we got a black this or hey look we got a woman over here. Again, I've said it before, I say it again, I keep saying it like a broken record. Like just because you have the first of anything does not mean we have arrived. It doesn't really mean anything other than. Somebody just broke a barrier and they're fixing to go through all kind of the levels of tokenism um, and what that brings uh, to you, particularly in positions of power. OK, um, I wanted to play for you one more clip and I'm going to get to my my guest. Um, I don't know who this gentleman is talking, but he's talking about just how finances and money get broken down uh, in society today. So this is what I'm talking about. Check it out. One percent of Americans own three quarters of the shares. It's highly concentrated. A tiny number of people, the 1%, own the bulk of the shares. How do you run a corporation? At the top is something called a board of directors, usually 15 to 20 people. How do you get on the board of directors? There's an election every year to get on that board. And the way the election works is, if you own a share of stock in the company, you get one vote. If you have 10 shares, you get 10 votes. If you own a million shares, you get a million votes. If you have no shares, that's how many votes you get. So there's no pretense of democracy. So if a handful of people own the bulk of the shares, they control everything. They select the 15 or 20 people on the board of directors. The board of directors decides what the company produces, how the company does it, where the company is located, and what's done with the profits. Everybody helps produce the profits. The employees have to live with the decision 
but have no influence on it. It is the opposite of democracy. And if you don't have democracy at the workplace, you can't ever have it real in politics either because those at the top will buy the political system, something which we see in the United States so starkly every day that everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and for me, that's a snapshot of the broader issue of where I think change needs to happen. Uh, it's in those boardrooms. Uh, and you think about just how politics is covered. I mean, I think about just just trying to get gun rights or, or gun uh, laws passed, stricter gun laws passed. I mean, think about just how difficult that has been. When you got white kids dying and people are still like, eh, you know, um, that's just, you know, arm the teachers. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, there's some some ass backwards shit. I mean, think about I know people have used this before, but I mean, think about the the notion or well, particularly back in the 9-11 days, uh, some cat tried to, uh, you know, get in with their shoes with a bomb in their shoes. And now all of us have to take our shoes off. Right. Uh, same thing with liquids. Somebody tried to like mix a bomb on a plane uh, because of the liquids. Now everybody's got to do the three ounces or less. Um, so I, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, where is the change actually happen? We are in an era of things reversing. We were, we are in the bizarro world right now. And I don't know how long this era is going to last, but things are being revealed. I think it's a space and time within human, uh, you know, evolution. I think technology is part of it as well. I think, you know, think about, you know, with what AI is doing, think about just the images that AI produces. Um, we're at a time where there's a lot of unhinging and a lot of disruptive forces happening. So things are being shown for what they really are. And whether this is the universe, whether it's theological, I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I don't think the world is ending, but I do think we as humans, as a species, are shifting. Um, and what that'll mean? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I think we want to know. I think theologically, evangelicals can say, oh, God is coming back soon. Niggas have been talking about that shit for centuries now, right? Same thing. God has come back. God has come back. God has come back. Um, but I do believe we're shifting as a society. And so we are in a bizarro era. Um, and so we're, we're regressing. We are regressing. Uh, we're not progressing. We are regressing. Um, and I get that's a thesis statement. Y'all can argue with me on that. Um, but nevertheless, it is it is it is an issue. And look at look at where things stand and not just in the U.S., but globally as well. Think about our natural resources that exist. Think about, you know, uh, you know, the storms that come and just drop, you know, inches of water on places and flood, you know, places that think about the amount of refugees trying to get just into the U.S. alone, especially from uh, the, our southern border. Um, so we're in, you know, we're, we're in the, the hoopla of it right now. I don't know what the next is going to bring. Uh, but hopefully, you know, maybe somebody listening, maybe you got a grant and you know, you're going to go out and, you know, change the world. <laughs> I, I don't know, man, but let me get to my guest. My guest, uh, is a friend. Uh, I had recorded this uh, a while back. Well, a couple months ago. Um, and, uh, we had a great conversation and, uh, Dr. Michelle Clifton, uh, she earned her PhD in social ethics at Loyola University here in Chicago. She holds two master's degrees in theology and ethics, 
Uh, she served for almost 20 years over at North Park uh, as professor of theology and ethics uh, and dean of faculty. Uh, Michelle's passion is interrupting the U.S.'s over-reliance on incarceration and finding creative alternatives such as equitable and accessible education or restorative justice through, excuse me, restorative justice solutions through collaborations uh, with the uh, with the most impacted. Uh, in 2018, she founded the School of Restorative Arts. It was an MA program here in Illinois. Uh, prisons serving over 100 incarcerated men and women at Stateville and Logan Correctional Centers. Uh, she currently serves as founding director of prison uh, education at Lewis University and has since launched a BA program in professional studies at Sheridan Correctional Center. She has published numerous books and articles on a wide range of topics. So I was like, got to get on the show. We got to talk. Uh, this is somebody who I feel is uh, making a change um, and I'm thankful to have her on. So uh, check out what she has to say. Uh, check out her work as always. Links are in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. Enjoy this conversation, fam. Take care. All right, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am back here, Profane Faith, uh, with a great guest of mine, uh, Dr. Michelle Clifton. Uh, she has done amazing work around prison industrial complex and uh, just doing shit around women and 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 sexuality and some great uh, work around just decolonizing your mind. Dr. Clifton, welcome. So welcome to Profane Faith. Finally. Thank you so much, Dr. Hodge. It's such a pleasure to be here. Always love conversation with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally do this. Um, but let me start with the question I ask everybody. Uh, what's been happening uh, with you from birth till now, to this very present oh moment? What's been going on in your life? Well, I can keep it short by basically saying I was I was born in an evangelical home, pretty conservative, um, conservative because it was run by my father. And, oh. you know, that this is my upbringing. I've spent my whole life in evangelical institutions. I, you know, um, ordained clergy, uh, dean of faculty, theologian at the seminary and the denomination that I serve, all the things. Right. Um, and uh, this little story kind of gives you a little bit of, of my background. So hmm. I was on a podcast last week called Dig New Streams, where I talked about leaving evangelicalism and why I was doing it, laying down my ordination credentials, all the things. Okay, okay. And I called my dad just to give him a heads up out of respect for him, let him yeah. know um, that this was coming out. And his first response was, um, actually after he assured me or or probably himself that i would be raptured up uh when the time comes <laughs> right he said you're a mess and i don't know that i'll even want to talk with you about this because you have never had an open mind and Whoa. i suppose Damn. yeah i suppose it would be uh, inappropriate for me to now wish you a merry christmas so instead of saying <laughs> Oh my gosh, what happened to you? Right. Or how are you doing? Right. Or what's going on? Or I love you because you're my daughter, no matter what, you know, I'll listen to this and then let's talk. It was all, you know, protect his authority. Yeah. I stepped outside of his bounds. And this is kind of the, the cycles that we see in evangelicalism. That that's uh that's deep. Okay, there's a lot to unpack with that, but that's a uh, that's deep. I mean, cause I feel like that is really you know, because you hear a lot of folks who say, 
either on the right or conservatives that say, oh, you know, we're for truth and we're for, you know, you can't just have this echo chamber. But what I find interesting or that, you know, especially the folks who say they're against woke culture, or against cancel culture. Yep. yep. Are some of the same people who want to like then take out anything that has that says queer in it or that says uh, white in it or that says, you know, critical race theory in it and stuff like that. Um, I'd be curious to know from you what what has been your process of leaving evangelicalism um, and where you find yourself now? I know those are two big questions, but I'd be curious to hear like what has been your process? What are some of the events right that led up to you being like, you know what, I'm laying down my my credentials yeah. and, and, and whatnot. So yeah, this, I don't know if that makes sense. It's a great question. And I mean, and this is, this is deep and it's, and it's, and it's real. Cause this is my family. I've always said, yeah. you know, I'm not evangelical compatible. I am part of the evangelical family. Yeah. And so to, to say, lay down your, you know, credentials and all that in your family is pretty, pretty tough stuff. And I would say, you know, honestly, it's this journey of, of becoming more and more aware um, and being in spaces of proximity with people who are ser- experiencing serious oppression and not just individual oppression, but generational and institutional systemic pr- oppression mm. and being in those proximity in, in those spaces over the last 10 years and really like having this deep feeling of growing misalignment with the institutions that I serve and the ideals and the activism that I'm trying to advance, in my case, it's pres- it's abolition, right? So trying to deal with racism, capitalism, um, all those things in the prison spaces and seeing how I kept bumping up against the institutions <laughs> that were supposedly supporting yeah. this work of justice and liberation. Right. And so that led me kind of out to, to sort of step outside um, the boundaries, the rules, logically, morally made decisions, you know, and, and part of that is because doing this work can wear you down. And yeah. right. Yeah. That's, yeah. My brother, you know this, Dr. Hodge. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's just it. Right. I mean, I think the, the, the wearing down, um, well, let's, I mean, let's, 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 and, and feel free by the name. I, like I said, I just always use the titles for just the beginning and stuff. I'm, I'm Dan, you Michelle, like we don't have to do the do titles it. or anything here. Um, let's do it. I just do it and you know, I'll put it in the title and all that stuff. Cause I want people to know, right? Like, Hey, you work for something. What? And, and well, let me actually start there. I mean, where did you get your doctorate in and what, what was it in? Like, why go that extra mile? Like, so that's why I like to ask yeah. PhDs or people who've done like advanced degrees is like, why go and spend that extra time writing and researching and all that mess? That's right. Well, cause one of my life's passions has been educational equity because I feel like education can be available, a vehicle to interrupt cycles of generational oppression, poverty, race, all that stuff. Yeah. So I got my PhD at Loyola University, Chicago, studied under Jesuits and other Catholic moral theologians. Oh. And, and what I walked away with from that, in, from that education was I was pretty steeped in liberation theology. Okay. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the core of liberation and specifically, um, I mean, I later learned more about, you know, the liberation theology and Dr. Cohn in the United States context, but really it was the Latin American context, which was a, had this, the Marxist critique, the critique of capitalism, all of yes, those pieces yes. intertwined with theology. And did you know that that's all over freaking scripture? <laughs> oh, don't start. Don't start. Uh, I mean, the liberation theologians I read had more scripture interaction than almost any uh, other 
theologian yeah. that I had been exposed to in my evangelical um, formation, my my main mainline formation. Yeah. I, yeah, I've been I was educated by mainline evangelicals, yeah. Catholics, all of it. And the Catholics are the one that really gave me the tools to do the social critique that I feel like is 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 absolutely inextricable from um, the kind of liberation that Christianity advances. Well, going back to liberation theologist, um, I, I, I'd be curious because one of the critiques, right, of almost any, right, because they all kind of get lumped in the same, right, and, and, and all of it usually comes back to the doorstep of James Cone and people haven't really read anything else outside of that. But it yeah. gets looked at as kind of this heathen, mm-hmm. uh, demonic theology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about a place like Moody, uh, and I've talked shit about Moody on the show a whole bunch and stuff. And so, and, and like, if you're a progressive, you just need to get the fuck out of, of Moody. Like, I don't even know what you're doing there if you consider yourself a progressive. <laughs> but my point being is, is that these institutions and places like that, Moody, Wheaton, uh, Biola, Azusa Pacific, look yep. at outside theology like that is what they label they mm-hmm, would label it mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. as really this threat to yeah. that can you talk a little bit about that especially with your background in yeah. that like how has that been navigated why is that so much so because it seems like to me not it seems like it is uh that oftentimes we only want to read in educational spaces white cishet men proselytizing, theologizing, all those things, right, about God. Yeah. But the minute you introduce an ethnic minority that doesn't fit into that, then all of a sudden it's, well, I don't know if we can have this conversation. Those are outside of scriptures. And then all this seriousness gets thrown on about how we can't, you know, pontificate about somebody else outside of mainstream whiteness. Does that make sense? Right. I, I, that's that's Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the evangelical group and institutions that I have been a part of tend to be on the more socially and even a little bit in some ways theologically progressive side in that they're very happy to be advancing the voices of ethnic minorities, people of color, women in in lip service. Right. Um, So so a lot of the courses that I even had in seminary in the 90s. We were reading James Cone and others. Here's when the ro- here's when it, the rubber hits the road and, and, and everything blows up. Come is on. that when you when you say God is a black man or God is a black woman and you start to you know right Reggie Williams book on Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus yeah or, yeah and and in my case the most recent excellent book on this is Christina Cleveland's book um, God is a Black Woman. Oh my god! The second you start saying that. Right. Everything. It's all of a sudden it's offensive. It's exclusive. You're 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 leaving out all the white people. And here's the irony. So Christina Cleveland's book, um, it, it, she 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 does this whole thing where she goes back and forth between critiquing what, what she calls white male God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And white male God is um, um, she's like, what, what do you do when you can't trust the power of the, the 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 God that we've represented as this white male God, which is all the things, white supremacy, capitalism, et cetera. And she basically says, um, the, the person that we're worshiping, and this infects our religion, is this patron of mediocre white men fueling un, their unmerited audacity to dominate the world. And <laughs> this is the God we've created in evangelicalism, she says. Then this is the environment they create. The yeah. environment is this terrifying tiny circle of acceptability oh and um right and they do it through this litany of fear you have to adhere to the rules um they define who's in and who's out how conflict is handled and uh, uh, and once you step outside of that morally theologically 
in your embodied self yeah. and just what you represent, you are immediately isolated, shamed, cut off from your income sources, um, painted, as you said, as demonic, what, you know, all of it, all uh, of right. it, because you, you are suddenly a threat to the mediocre drive <laughs> for white men to, to, to maintain their power. And I have seen that all over evangelical institutions. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. How have you encountered that yourself as a woman, uh, as an educated woman? I don't know how you survived in that environment that you were in at uh, at this institution that we that will that we will not name. Um, I, I think about every time I talked about people who were doing things, I was just like, it was you at the time, of course, Sunshan Ra, who was there, and then later on yeah. uh, with Elizabeth Pierre. Um, who I've also had on the show as well, but I'm like, I don't. Vicky, ready? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm yep. just, I'm just trying to understand <laughs> because I, I, I don't know. It. I will say this: that coming from a place like Azusa Pacific on the West Coast, APU, um, which mm-hmm. my, my my good friend uh, and colleague Scott Scott Akimoto, uh runs a great podcast. Uh, called uh, Chapel Probation, and he's like, go, he's 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 creating all kind of great dust, uh, and and, and interviewing people who mm-hmm. are former faculty members like myself, former wow. students, and talking about you know some of the things that that were going on in that place. But how did you navigate people who were saying, oh, we want to do justice and liberty, right, and all this CCDA crap, right, that we want to do, but then in reality, it's like, hey, what do you? Why would we want to bring more ethnic minorities? And now you're a woman and talking and like, what? Oh, it's just disturbing, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many times yeah. did you get mansplained in the time that you were there? I, I just can't imagine shit. Well, this is the thing, and 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 honestly, Dan, I so I there are ways that I colluded with power that that I now I hear you. and yeah. never, you know, yeah. and. And it worked for me. I mean, I'm an educated white woman, right? Um, I know how to talk. I know the language. Um, there's yeah. just a lot of ways the system worked for me. I think what wore me down in, in, in was doing the justice work. Like I said, um, so evangelicals do not understand the ways that they have been held captive at all. And because they don't understand that, it comes back and kicks them in the ass and in ways that they that they don't they don't see or that are surprising. And here's an example. When, when you're doing the real justice work that you know is eventually going to bump up against um, evangelicals collusion with and in sort of toxic power centers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, um, when you start to do that work over time uh, and, and again, being in a prison space like those people know how they're held captive. The, the principalities and all of that are clear. You can see it on a on a daily basis. And Anyway, doing that work, having one foot in the prison, and, and my therapist actually jokingly said, "Man, you you went to prison to escape the chains of your evangelical institution." <laughs> there you go. See? Wow. Wow. And so, when you're doing that work, Dan, and you've got one foot in the free world and yeah. one world world in the world of, of where their people are literally slaves. Yeah. Um, and and it's always going to be trauma work anyway. Doing justice work, and your institution yeah. is not a trauma informed institution. Over time, it's gonna it's gonna fester and it's gonna grow, and that it's gonna infect you know even mm. people who are trying to do the best kinds of work, like yourself, right. like Sunshan, like me, like Vicky, like right, and and so I think um, 
not being trauma informed and putting people out there and not giving them support. And and I would come up with things like literally people would say, you want to keep this prison program. You need to stop talking about the LGBTQ advocacy. And so, okay, good. Yes, yes, yes. Misalignments do not work over time. If you want to be an authentic uh, self in the world, Sorry, go. No, 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 no. I'll just say, just continue with that. Because, and I'll just say this, but I want you to continue with that because that's my largest critique of some of these Christian organizations that will say, oh, yeah. we're all about racism and justice and everything. But the minute you bring up anything LGBTQI, it is hush puppies right it is is quiet it is crickets or they want to i remember ccda and and i'm i'm fine i mean i have much love i mean ccda urban youth workers institute those places gave me gave me my start so i have a lot of love for them but it's because it's out of that love that i have critique because i remember when they uninvited cornell west because you know some of the donors didn't like that he was too progressive and that he was for queer folk you know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Um, yep. And I'm just like, what the fuck, man? But talk a little bit more about yep. that. And in, 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 just for me, you're leaving the whole conversation out of all we ever just talk about is white and black racism. Like, it's just it's just yeah. this. Right. It's just this little yep. view rather than talking about intersectionality. That's right. And but I would never compare myself to Cornell West, obviously, but I, I cannot tell you how many things I've been disinvited to in the last you know, a couple of years. Anyway, mm-hmm. all that to say, I think, you know, like the pillars of the toxic pillars of the sort of moral theology that we see in evangelicalism, binary thinking, like, right. Like you said, everything has to be black and white. Yeah. There's no room in Christina Cleveland's language. There's no room to fuck with the grays. Um, and, and, and so it's all, it's binary. It's black and white thinking. It's um, you're for justice until it hits your paycheck, whether personally or institutionally, right? Punitive responses to disobedience. Sexual purity is everything. So this is why we have our homophobia and our cultural heterosexism, um, why women are held to standards that men are not. All these things, pitting marginalized, like all this stuff um, that's that's really in evangelicalism. Um, um, If if, if, without coming to grips with all of that, there is no way that justice work can be done in any kind of intersectional way, because there's always going to be one group as a threat to another group. And all of it is a threat to the patriarchal white male supremacy, the system that holds that evangelicalism is founded on mm-hmm. right in mm-hmm. this country, racism, capitalism, patriarchy. And here's the thing um, personally that I've that I um, found really difficult over time and that is um, the way people's stories are exploited okay, and yes. used to advance the institution. So, like, let's just take, again, the justice work, right? So um, I, can, I have seen so many times people's stories told, whether it be my own story or stories of men in prison or mm-hmm. wherever, mm-hmm. and they get it wrong and they didn't have permission and um, they'll tell it in a sermon and, and, they, and there's all these things that are wrong and it's like changed to sort of make the institution look good yeah. or the person yeah. giving the story yeah. look good rather than being a story about this person is living in slavery and captivity and like they don't even, you know, all of, all of the, the ways that people get misrepresented. And honestly, my, the language that I use for that is this is actually what 
what the book of James and what when scripture's talking about gossip and Paul, th- this is gossip. Gossip is not um, women in a in a in a coffee group speaking out of turn about somebody. Gossip is powerful people with access to information, sharing it without permission, distorting it in ways that fit the ways that they want to shape the narrative. Mm. And secondly, mm. the people that are close to that toxic power receiving the gossip. And rather than saying, this is not your story to tell, they feel like they have a right to um, these stories, whether it's a right. Um, so they, they have a right to the information because they are also in proximity with these toxic power centers. And so I don't know. I just want to say that because that that is controlling the narrative, telling stories, disinformation um, by people who have access that are supposed to be protecting yeah. right? <laughs> the stories of people who are less powerful than they that that that's all over the place Oof. in evangelicalism. Absolutely. I mean, I, I having worked for Young Life uh, and, and many other, you know, evangelical outreach organizations, especially uh, in black and brown neighborhoods or, you know, you know, poor disenfranchised neighborhoods. There is a really the engine that drives that are those stories. Right. Uh, it's one of the yeah. reasons why I've yeah. I've signed off on on not telling my story, quote unquote, my uh, what do they call it? The uh, You know, your testimony, if you will, uh, anymore. <laughs> like I'm yeah. not like mm-hmm. I record like literally the, the first episode of this podcast was that was it. I recorded it. I was like, <laughs> you want to go here? You can go spend the hour and a half. And I deliberately yeah. made it long so that people, yeah, you know, because <laughs> oh, you listen. All right, all right, all right. That's good. That's good. Um, but it's just like, but it gets, it gets pimped out, right? I mean, there's, there's a whole thing about, right? We're gonna put these stories yeah. on the corner. They gonna make money for us. Yeah. And at the end of the day, yeah. the people who actually are doing the work and live that, they're not the ones getting paid. They're not the ones getting the receiving the the benefit of that. Yeah. They are being exploited. And and as yeah. somebody who has had that pookie story, I remember when I was at Fuller. And they were trying to build a new library. And I tell the story all the time. And they wanted me to tell this story about my friend being shot and everything. And they were like trying to get more details. Like, hey, would you have a newspaper clipping? And, you know, do you have a name and all that? And I was like, oh, hell no. No, uh-uh. Like, what? why are you going to? And, and I remember they were relentless. When I put my yeah. feet down, they were relentless about trying to get this. Because they, in their mind, because they weren't trying to use it for to actually move something forward in the needle uh, with black on black crime right exactly it was an exotic thing (laughs) right it was an exotic thing consumption exactly you said it you said it right and and dan here's the thing all in the name of ministry oh that's what kills me (laughs) in the name of ministry and yeah i i mean it you know yeah it, it 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 that, that sensationalizing and because you need the attention and then you need to have the followers and that brings the money, you know, yeah. always follows money. That's just a cliche that I don't know. It's that. Well, that's one of the more disturbing things too, right? Is, is the money. Cause I don't think enough people talk and engage with this. Uh, it's something that I try to do in my book, Homeland Insecurity uh, in regards to talking about short-term missions mm-hmm. and, you know, where the money comes from how the money is used mm-hmm. uh and i don't think enough folks are are engaged with that because you know people who want to go and oh i'm gonna ban you know i'm gonna boycott starbucks or i'm gonna boycott 
Um, I'm just like, okay, that's cool. But, I'll, you know, are we boycotting some of these rich donors, right, that are that are also supporting Trump? I mean, I think about the, the CEOs of, uh, what is it, Hobby Lobby and uh, Chick-fil-A who are going out and, like, mm-hmm. buying up all these Christian reddicks and really stealing them from other cultures and trying mm-hmm. to really Americanize. There's a whole documentary on this. Americanize Christianity by bringing those things here, things that are out of Egypt, out of Bethlehem, out of places like that. They are taking it and bringing them here. They're one of the biggest consumers of of, of vintage relics um, to try to create this narrative that Christianity originated here. How have you engaged with some of that and just some of the again the patriarchy that that exists so strongly? It's almost well, it's not almost. It is in the air we breathe. It's in the water that we drink. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm throwing stuff out there, yeah. but, but come on with it. <laughs> no, it's a lot of stuff. And I think that the, the thing that you're getting at, the cultural appropriation, right? Um, whether it, you know, I literally heard some um, some older white pastor who is in a high, high position in the covenant, like try to like, literally come out and before his speech, try to do hip hop. And I'm like, uh, I mean, it's just so, oh. <laughs> right, right. I mean, oh. you can't make this shit up. No, but you can't. No, you can't. The appropriation and and um, um, just the again the the collusion with 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 power. I mean, it's just it's it's deep. And I think when you start to uncover those layers and see how they're operating, um, it's 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 pretty sinister. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and again, this is why I love, and I keep going back, back to, because she's been the most formative theologian on me of, of late, Christina Cleveland stuff. She's talking about, you know, God is, is a black woman, and, yeah. and she uses the category of sacred black feminine. And the irony is, she says, everybody is invited into this, but most people aren't ready for this kind of liberation. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, one of the things, um, so the individualism, that is so pro- pronounced and prominent in evangelical, like you talked about testimony, right? Like yeah. your test, like the individualism. I think that's another way that we're held pretty captive. And, um, you know, even in my own story, um, like I told you, like my dad, for example, like, mm-hmm. why didn't he say, how are you? Or are you okay? <laughs> right. Or like institutions that I've worked in when I've, when I've, you know, messed up or whatever which every you know like or to question his own like inquiry into you like man like um damn like how did i even assist i mean like what what was your process of 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 coming to this right i don't mean to interrupt but i'm just like good night i mean you know he just went right for the ah well you've never been right those kind of absolutist statements right (laughs) yep 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 never never been open-minded and i thought to myself i've lived under the white male god domination for my whole life. How is that? I <laughs> just when it's antithetical to what I believe now as a theologian, as a right. ethicist, as a human, right, as right. a human being. And you know, honestly, uh, and, and people will try to say, you know, well, yeah, I'll, I'll let I'll let that one be. But when it comes to institutions, too, Dan, and even like you know, evangelicals trying to talk about this sort of alluring story that you know all are loved and you're always restored to christian community like this kind of gaslighting right and actually at at a former institution i had you know they would talk about sunsetting programs (laughs) i'm like what the like i'm sure the people whose program was sunset would not use that language right we use this language to make it look all pretty 
and wrapped up right when 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 really what's happening is this sort of deep kind of exclusionary disciplinary sort of practices right and i've experienced that personally and i've experienced it in institutions and one of the things that um i think um this is actually so i talked about doing justice work and needing trauma-informed institutions and when you don't have them you, you have to be trauma-informed to do this work, right? Yeah. And one of the, the things that I do is I have a kick-ass therapist who, of course, is a black woman. <laughs> she gets all the things. She not only can do the psychoanalytic work, but she gets systems and can, can critique those and all of that. And um, one of the things I experience in that space is um, unconditional positive regard, which is this therapeutic technique where you um, basically everything is, anything can be said. And nothing is shocking, and 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 it's it's to try to get your defenses to come down enough in a safe and and acceptable unconditional space where you can actually look at your grays, your mm. all of the ways that your um like the not so pretty parts, right? Um, all of it, and 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 try to find alignment once you can see it all. But you can't find alignment if you can't see it all. And this is a reflection of evangelicalism. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so I've been like trying to learn that and practice that in my emotionally committed relationships, my close relationships as a parent. And, and my patron saint in this work is actually Dolores Huerta. Mm, and okay. she like, so, so I think about her activism and like, how did she sustain not only um, doing all the work with the United Farm Workers th- movement that she did, but, but not being seen and recognized like, she should be up, up there with Dr. King. And most people yeah. don't even know who she is. Right. She was the co-founder of this movement. And, and and when people do find out who she is, I've heard like critiques, right? Well, she was, by the time she was 32, she had seven kids and she had had on her second marriage and she had all of these relationships and blah, blah, blah. And the thing that I love about her story that I think is so powerful, um, and I know her kids had a hard time with, because she's always on the road. Her activism was front and center. And white women, and this is what I've been trained to do in, in my evangelical purity culture and need to produce and all of that, you, you kind of pit like motherhood and a fulfilling career and you need to be superwoman and do it all. And Dolores just lived unapologetically. She's like, yep, probably not the best that my kids, I have to leave my kids on the road and my kids are upset and they their mother's not home and, and blah, blah, blah. And she never said, I never heard her say, um, I had to make all these personal sacrifices in order to do this. What I heard her say was unapologetically, I am about my activism. My kids are going to see this example in me. Hopefully that gets instilled in them. And what it means to parent is to teach them the, the collective nature of justice work and that I'm not just concerned about my own children. I'm concerned about the children for in my community and my, and my whole, and my people. And, I don't know. I just think like when you, this is what Christianity is supposed to be about, but I rarely experience it. This unconditional positive regard. (laughs) When you actually experience that, you're going to get your freaking heart broken. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that power doesn't like its heart. People in power don't want to have their heart broken, but when you have your heart broken and it gets fixed, you realize that you can take risks that will fail and still be okay. And even be better. Um, And and I think that that and to be supported in that and to find spaces where you can take risk, fail and all of that and mend your broken hearts and and 
keep advancing justice. Like I can just imagine Dolores's kids going crying, mama, come home, come home. And, and look at the work she did and look where her kids are now. Like this collect the icon of collective justice, um, unapologetic, few marriages, lots of relationships, a bunch of kids. Like she just, all the things she is a woman. Worth, worth, worth lifting up. Well, and I think that's interesting too, right? I mean, just the the narrative of women in the movement, um, and we can go all the way back to you know whether it's Dolores or whether it's even Afeni Shakur who was involved in the you know the Black Panther mom of Tupac Shakur. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and the amount of sexism that she had to experience, even in a movement that is claiming to be right yeah. this for the people and and about. I mean, so. And I think about that and I think about just the amount of unsung heroes, right, that that yeah. that that were in the way. So people always like summarize the civil rights movement down to just Martin Luther King. And I'm just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you're leaving yeah. out a whole bunch of people and a whole lot of women. Yeah. Right. That in one sense. Right. Men have always been able to you can talk about sexuality. Right. I mean, the men have always been able to go out and have those kids. Right. And, and, and be able to kind of just like. We rarely have those conversations. It wasn't until years later that I found out about MLK's just own, just, you know, sexuality, yep. you know, how, how yep. he loved other women and stuff. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. And, yep. and go ahead. you'll never hear that. You will never hear that being displayed or, or he still gets to be a hero as he should. Sure. As he should. Of course. Of course. <laughs> One of many. Yes. But I think that's just it, right? In this kind of puritanical culture that we live in of yep. Yep. of women need to be this kind of virgin material. We don't want them to be hoes. We don't want, right? We want them yep. to be these yep. pure. Meanwhile, the men can be just as pornographic and as, as, as rough and tough and all those things, right? What, how yeah. some of those things, how's that some of that that narrative impacted you, particularly, you know, getting at purity culture? Uh, and, and and that was one of the questions I want, I was thinking about asking, like, how as a woman and ask most women or people who identify as women on this show, how has purity culture affected you, especially coming through evangelicalism? Yes. So I want to say two things about that. Please. Um, first, when you talked about the gender stuff and that men can, you know, women can't be the hoe, they can't be like sexually expressive, right? Right. Or just ex confident and comfortable in our skin mm -hmm. and whatever. And and I think of like the, there's this kind of metaphorical way that that plays out in institutions. And I've heard men, um, you know, talk about women in power, like psychologically, like even use language like psycho or yeah. messed up or, you know, whatever, as a way to control, right? I've never heard a man called psycho in, my, in the context that I've worked in by a woman. <laughs> and so all that is, is this, again, this way of, I didn't get what I wanted or I'm being controlled by a woman in a way I don't want what to. And so I'm going to call them this. And even that language, it feels like a kind of sort of institutional rape, even though it's psychological language, because it's like this woman acts this way. This is what the response should be. This makes the, the punitive response, whether it's name calling or shaming people or isolating or whatever it is, it makes it okay because she did this. Yeah. She didn't use her power well. She, you know, isn't being supported in trauma work. So she's like breaking down over here or whatever. So um, I want to say that first. 
Um, secondly, purity culture. So what purity culture does is it trains you to be afraid of yourself. Mm. Trains you to be afraid of your body. Ooh. It trains you to be afraid of desire. It trains you to um, be afraid of anything other than being what I call a possession, a possession of marriage, the institution of marriage, a possession of evangelical, the ways that, that they circumscribe sexuality. Like as long as I'm in this structure of possession and rules and, and the structure, right? Yeah. Um, I'm okay. And that's a pretty confined structure because I mean, evangelicals don't even know how to talk about sex in any healthy way. No. It's all prohibitive. Yes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. You, you know, and, and it causes you to be afraid of yourself. And again, this links into the freight, the fear and the homophobia and the fear that, that, you know, evangelicals, that's my context have around even having a conversation around, um, LGBTQ, uh, identity, inclusion, um, experiences, et cetera. I think, uh, Wow, you said some good things. The possession of, um, not so much at the end. Well, it, I can't say that, but I think, let me back up a little bit. I would say that so much of when I used to see women who would come through, for example, when I taught in, in actual direct ministry courses, uh, you know, women that would come through and, you know, wanting to be pastors and wanting to be ministers, right? There was... They're right there was always this struggle because it's like they you could tell they have been dipped and dyed in the notion um and this gets into the this isn't just white students this is black this is latinx yeah um they have been dipped and dyed into the notion that um being married right is kind of the capstone of their yep. of their career yep. like that is that is something that is fostered and and you're that's a goal and if you don't especially if you reach a certain age and you're still single and really once you hit your 30s um yep. and you're still single as a woman in ministry people begin to question right uh, and then it kind of goes yep. then it starts to kind of just like branch out into other areas is she gay are you a stud? Yep. Are you lesbian? You like women? Yep. Yep. You know, yep. what's wrong with you? Like you said, that notion of being crazy, that's rhetoric that has been used. It's used a lot in the African-American community, right? But that woman, she crazy, man. She is crazy. You know, well, they wouldn't even call a woman. They'd be like, that bee is crazy, man. You know, that hoes nuts, <laughs> man. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think, and you're absolutely right. Men don't necessarily get that in that regard right and i and mm -hmm. purity culture affects men too don't get me wrong i i'll be the first yeah. to admit that but particularly with how women should be how they should look um how yeah. have you navigated because i know you got kids how have you navigate that <laughs> trying to raise a daughter who's now i think she's in college now she just graduated from usc wow last May. wow okay <laughs> so she's done with college now i remember when i saw her, she was a youngin but now she's done yep. so i get it they grow quick Yep. And I'm, I could not be happier for who she is. And it's not, it's not, it, it is, it is both because of, and in spite of my parenting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm even thinking like when she was in high school, um, there were times when I'd be like, you cannot wear that to school. You cannot wear that to school. You cannot. And I'm like, in my head, I'm finally, I'm like, why are you doing this to her? Like, yeah. She's going to figure this out. 
like that's part of parenting, right? Is letting them go to explore themselves. And, and we are so accustomed. This is part of the purity culture. This is what I was just talking about to having all the moral authorities. Those voices are external to us. We don't cultivate our internal moral voice. And because of that, um, we don't learn to trust ourselves. This is why I say we're afraid of ourselves, especially as women, because men try to control women's bodies all over the place. And, <laughs> and actually when they can't, when they can't, they don't handle it interpersonally. They right. bring an institutional power to fix it. There you go. That's what, that's what happens. They have the resources and positions to bring in institutions. I just want to say that piece. Please. But, but um, one of the things, and I've actually learned this in the last year uh, in trying to decolonize my own desires, my body, the ways that I like sort of just my default ways of thinking. I've been doing intentional work in my therapeutic spaces and my yeah. close relationships with people that get it. Part of that is like, it, it's okay if somebody wears something that makes me uncomfortable or my daughter in this case, or, or my son, right. Or like, like they're old enough and they've been loved enough and accepted enough. Like they're got, like I said, gonna figure it out. And when they develop their own moral compass for whether it's what they want to wear or who they want to be sexually um, in relationship with or whatever it is, um, that's when that's when people I think learn to flourish. Like yeah. they trust themselves as they trust their voice. They trust the tools they've been given. If they've been loved, not perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. They, they've seen examples of my own failures and that's like, that's a good thing because it allows them to do their own failures. So if I had to do it again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell her don't wear this to school or don't interact in this way or don't, you know, I would, I would, I, I would do the unconditional positive regard with things like yeah. that a little bit better. And it is what it is. And I'm doing it now. And I'm still a huge part of their life. And I'm going to just keep doing my work um, and hope that's a model for their work, living unapologetically and just saying, this is who I am and who I am is enough right now. And who you are is enough right now. Yeah. It's enough. That's powerful. I think that's a powerful message. I think that, and, and, and you're right. I mean, I think as we evolve, I think one of the, the the aspects of 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 21st century just kind of Western, right? This idea notion of everything being individualized and everything is that you know we hold people at the at the at the at the level of the account of of what they have done. So if you've done something, that's what people yeah. hold you to. I I use the example like my grandmother, God rest her soul, I loved her to death. But she would remember everything. I remember one time my mom, they were driving and my man, my grandmother and my mom, they would, you know, my grandmother always critique her driving and all this stuff like that. And she'd be like, ah, you're driving too fast. And I remember one time my mom got pulled over and got a ticket and see my and my grandma just would, she was relenting. Just, she was like, ah, I, see, I told you, I told you. And for years, she would still remember that, right? Like you got pulled over. I was right. But I think about the institutions and about how much, right? It's like people hold you to that rather than a saying, hey, I've I've grown. I always say this. I hope I'm not in the same space I am right now, a year from now. I hope that I have moved yep, the yep, notch on, forward, good. right? Yep. Um, but yes. so often people want to hold you at, well, but didn't you say this or didn't you say that? Um, I, yeah, I, I'm sure I did. Let me own it. Um, but that was a different time. And let me explain to yep. you why I have 
evolved. I've gone through and I've tried to do a, a decent job of apologizing to a lot of the kids. Well, they ain't kids anymore. They, they grown folks now um, that I worked with 20, 25 years ago, you know, in Young Life or any of the youth organizations and stuff. Uh, because I was like, you know, I was just in a different headspace. I thought that was the right thing to be saying mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so yes. And I think, you know, I remember on, on your podcast where you talk about your story and you talk about needing this external validation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and like, I wish we didn't need, like we need to develop our own sense of assuring ourselves that we are enough. Yeah. And, and what you said, like, I made mistakes in young life that I wouldn't, but that was the best you were doing at that time. And, you know, I, and probably you were really operating on the moral authority of somebody else rather than your own internal compass as much as you are now. Right. So you're kind of actually apologizing for the institutional authority that formed us, deformed us, yeah. malformed us mm -hmm. in ways that, um, again, made us fear our own sort of internal compass or what we know to be right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, good. And good. Right. And fear our bodies. I mean, I think that's one of the things I've learned through yep. somatics is like, man, you like, I am greatly fearful of what my body may be saying to me and about me. Um, and yeah. I can't imagine it for what, what for, for women. Right. I mean, cause women have been told, hate your body, this and this and that you're essentially a, a tool for your husband. Like anytime your husband wants sex, you are to give it to him because, and I was just reading an article on this the other day. I think it was on uh, religion dispatches about how, um, no, 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 that's right. It was, it was actually on the Atlantic. It was a woman who said, I'm no longer a title. I'm actually going to use it in one of my classes. And she was talking about how she's invisible now to men. She turned like 58 and she feels like, you know, and she was just kind of reflecting about, you know, some of the messages that she received, um, as mm -hmm. a young woman and, and, and going back and, and talking about like, you know, as, as, as a married woman, you are literally a, a receptacle for your, your husband to do anything that he wants, because if you don't, He's going to go off to porn. He's going to go to prostitutes. He's going to go and cheat on you. Um, and who wants that? Right. It's just like, I'm, I'm well, and even the idea of consent, Dan, oof. like it's a kind of a moot point in, in many ways. Yes, um, please. Yes. I mean, yeah. Um, and this idea that you have to be all person, all things to, to as a spouse you know and i think this is true for men too like do you have to, like to be all all things to all people and then and then yeah it, it's just it, it there's just so much the institution of marriage especially in the christian context yeah. has so much control in it that it's a wonder that people figure out how to make it flourish right right no it's it is and it is a miracle it, it, but i would also say that i think that's also, one of the things that has, has probably led to particularly a lot of women saying, I'm going to take ownership of this and, and, and what I'm what I'm what I, who I'm really interested in as a woman. Right. As other women. And I was been holding this back for years and now I need to move on. And I think it's easy. Right. Because you get some of these pundits, if you will, these cultural pundits who want to make fun of people who identify a different way or use pronouns a different way. Yeah. And people who always yeah. want to, you know, it's like, oh, why was pronouns so important? Like you said, you call God a she, and then all of a sudden you go see how yep. important pronouns are. <laughs> right? I love that. That is excellent. 
Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I mean, it's yep. the same thing with like people complain. Oh, we don't want to see Jesus. We don't. Jesus knows no race. Okay, give me black Jesus, and all of a sudden That's people right. is just like they're bitching and moaning and complaining about how. Well, this is just a black thing. I don't understand why we have to deal with this. So I think that's I think that's fascinating, you know, in, in that regard. Um, Dan, I have a question for you. Uh, yeah, so please. When we were talking about this, I sent you James Bald that James Baldwin quote. Yeah. The concept of God, if the concept of God has any validity or use, it can only be to make us larger, freer and more loving. If God cannot do this then it is time that we got rid of him. Yeah. And I'm like really struggling with that quote right now because of what I've experienced in, in a lifetime, but especially in the last couple of years yeah. in institutions that, that aren't like they're, the illusion. It, it's so disappointing. Like the, that disillusionment is part of what it means to mature as a human being. But when it comes to religion and this, again, this quote, the time that we got rid of him, like, how do you think about that? I mean, as a black man who's experienced so many forms of oppression in your own life too, generationally, individually. Yeah, no, I through that. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. There's a um there's a a great reader that I picked up, I don't know, about 12, 13 years ago. It was called uh, Evangelical Disillusionment and in it uh, Baldwin has an essay talking about um, you know, expanding a little bit more on that quote um in regards of of getting rid of him particularly in, in in the male pronoun sense and and in the sense of how we view the really the socio-theological concept of who god is and i think a lot of some people might not i'm just saying you are but i think a lot of people mis, misinterpret that in that sense that they think oh we got to get rid of we got to be an atheist i think there's a lot of room between fundamentalist and atheist that we have yet yeah. to explore yeah. um and i think that's the thing right i think because when we begin to unpack and you know this as, as an ethicist as a theologian we begin to unpack how the bible was put together you cannot yeah. ignore the fact that it's been tainted and reshaped in the ways of humankind and particularly for that's those right. who are in power um that's right you cannot interpretive history exactly all of that shifted yes all of that yeah. stuff right and the fact oh. that the councils didn't even have any women in them right and you can't tell me at that point like people want to make the argument oh this society is going like everybody's you know coming out as queer and this I, like look queers and gay people they've been around since the dawn of time this is just the first time yeah. we've been able to see it these little social media yeah. apps are making it more apparent it's like people who want to make connections about the end of the world. Look at all these birds that got killed in Brazil. And look at all these storms. I'm like, nigga, please. Th that shit was going on in the 1700s. You just didn't have the goddamn internet to connect all the dots. Okay. Mm, so let's, yep, let's, yep. let's, let's look at this thing logically and let's begin to understand that the reality of it is, is that yes, there's something beyond the, what we can see. I believe that. I believe that there's something beyond. I mean, you can't tell me that, a, a, a planet yep. that's third from the sun uh, is in the Goldilocks position. Not only that, we have an electromagnetic field that blocks us from harmful rays that could destroy the possibility of how life is, is even possible, how matter even comes together in an organic uh, sense. Um, right. Not only that, the sun, while it can kill us, it also protects us. It sends out a heliosphere that protects our entire solar system from interstellar <laughs> rays like, I'm sorry, that shit just doesn't happen by happenstance. Now, yeah. 
Now that we've said that, though, how do we interpret God? I don't know. I, I, and that's that's the part that I don't that I think evangelicalism fails at because evangelicals and so much of Christianity over the last hundred years and in the last century wants to explain things and give answers. And that's where for me, I'm just like, yes, yes. Okay, I, Dan, can I give you an example Please. of that in sort of my own, in my own scholarship and then personal journey and bringing it back to sexuality and bodies. So um, I, I've always, you know, as a theologian, talked about the living word. Like scripture is, uh, what it means for scripture to be alive is that when we read these stories, right, um, we are shaped and formed by them. And then our lives become living authorities or living examples of, of like the word of God. In other words, it's not just this dead textbook. It's right. it's our bodies and our lives and our stories and how they're shaped. So when it comes to LGBTQ inclusion, for example, my my whole thing is okay. I'm not queer, but I want to and I want to know how my queer friend finds their story in scripture and how they've been shaped by it. If if that's what they want, that to me is what our interpretive practices should be. And I even remember I was in a meeting a few years ago where um, a bunch of pastors didn't want to take a class from me. They were church planners, <laughs> almost all white men, for the, for the record. I think I heard um, about that, actually, but yes, actually, please. Actually, and the, pre- the, the person who was uh, kind of overseeing them at the time was like, why don't they want to take classes? I said, they've never taken a class from me. So I don't know. He, he's like, well, why do you think they don't want to take a class from you? And I said, because they're misogynist. Right. Right. <laughs> and he right. take that anyway. So so they wanted to put me on the stand, basically. So I had I met with like over 20 people because they wanted to talk to me about my my um, um, my my views on human sexuality. Right. Code for what do right. I think about people? Right. Who are gay. Right. Exactly. So they, they and they gave me like 20. They gave me 20 minutes to, to do some stuff before we got into anything. And, you know, what the first thing I did was, do you know what Awana is? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Awana, I, 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 I won the Timothy Award. I'm so proud of it. Get out of here! So All right, trophy. I brought my trophy. And Shut I put up! My trophy Are you serious? Many, I put my trophy in front of me and I said, "This is where my story starts <laughs> with the memorization of scripture." Oh. And thank God it has moved along from there, and I'm actually interpreting now. And so then I proceeded to interpret our senocoidi in Paul's use. Uh, in in the New Testament and mm-hmm. talked about, you know, like this word is used to say, you know, any form of gay relationship is wrong. But here's like the history of some of this word. And it's barely used in scripture. And the extra biblical literature where it is used more often refers to the ex- economic exploitation of bodies than mm-hmm. it does with male and male sex. Right. So I said, for right. me as a reader, as for me as a reader, if right. I want my story to be shaped and formed by this living word, I'm going to go with economic exploitation because that is a temptation for me. Um, that 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 right, like this makes more sense. That this is saying, do not exploit somebody else's body for economic gain. <laughs> and you know, like when I said that, and I, I, I said this has, is not about gay sex. This is about taking something that's not yours and abusing it, something that should be in the image of God. And Ugh. anyway, I gave that example and the two black people in the room were like, come on, bring it. Right. <laughs> and one was pretty conservative. Um, but all that to say the art power is always going to shape 
power and knowledge in its own form. And that has been one of my greatest disappointments of Christian higher education mm-hmm. is that it's supposed to be this free inquiry where people can advance knowledge for the public good. And this is a Christian ideal too, in theory. Um, but I just, I don't know. It, it It's going to take some kind of work for us to, to, to hold Christianity and justice together. I think yeah. in evangelical spaces. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm for the complete dismantling and crumbling of evangelicalism. I, I don't think there's any 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 hope left in it. I think yeah. I think we're going to continue yeah. on with Christianity. And, you know, you can read the Pew research. You can read PRRI. You can look at some of the trends, yeah. right, of of where yeah. Christianity is at and where it's headed. Um, yeah. There's some the young ma- people I spend time with. They're like, we are we, we, we are we are human. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and they were and, all raised in Christian homes. Yes. And committed. They work at Bible camps. They do yes. all the things, but they're like, I'm not the church. The, and the, the institutional aspect, I right. should say. I don't want to say the church. And the it, institutional. Exactly. And I think the church can either take a position of, wow, let us really reflect on that. I mean, this goes back to even your dad's response, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, he can either take a position of like, Whew, okay, how did you arrive at this and how do we move forward together? Or yeah. you can dig your heels in, you know, circle the wagons and say, oh, these fuckers are all going to hell in a handbasket. And how can we, you know, put <laughs> out more literature? <laughs> right. How can we right? Exactly. And so that's, you know, that's, those are some of the things that I think that, that I struggle with now and, and whatnot in regards to that and stuff, because colonization, as you know, runs deep. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and it's not yeah. just white people. It's it's black folk, too, um, who continue to believe some of this stuff. And that's the part of it. I think that's the part of ideology runs deep. It's it's what fuels yeah. wars. It's what fuels somebody yeah. to go and kill somebody else. Right. It's because it's like I believe that yeah. God, especially when you say God has told me to go and do this, whatever that is. Yeah. Because who yeah. wants to hang out with the devil? Yep. And and that's the whole irony, like what you're saying, Dan, the, the racism, economic exploitation, the colonization and the violence that are the antecedents of evangelicalism in this country in particular, I don't know that that can be saved. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why I keep my magazines ready and loaded. <laughs> Y'all niggas take fucking around. Um, I'm coming to your house. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We should go shooting together for real. Um, so where do you find yourself now? Where are you at now? In, and feel free not to name the organization, but what are you up to now in regards to, because at the end of the day, like I tell everybody, look, this internet, these lights, they, they ain't free. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they ain't yep. free. We're in a capitalist society. So something's got to be paying for them. Yep. So, yes, I'm in another higher ed institution. It's um, been a good experience. Um, I'm, I'm kind of treating it as my work and not my family, which is what I did. That was my, I think, maybe mistake uh, at former institutions. It's my work. It's my place of work. And it, it, it helps me advance my passion, which is educational equity for people who are incarcerated, individuals in custody who get an education. Um, that is their, That is the ticket to liberation, I believe. And so I'm now working in another prison, starting a bachelor's degree program. I'm founding director of the program. Damn, got it going on. I had I actually went into class last week and um, met met with the students. I'd been meeting with them, you know, for the last couple months, and brought the books in. And they're they're pretty nervous about it because this is new for them. Mm-hmm. And one of my roles as an education as an educator is to create. Um, 
liberating, do pedagogy and create spaces that are liberating where people feel like they belong. Yeah. That their academic identity is, is part of who they are. And one student said, I haven't read a book like this in, you know, 15 years. And, and I said, I said, don't worry, this is not the only content in this course. You have a wealth of life experience that is going to drive the direction of our learning in this space. And his response was immediately, he just said, this is going to be the coolest motherfucking class ever. <laughs> I love it. Come on, man. That's what I'm talking about. Self-worth, 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 right? He's going to bring his life experience, which is, which is as important as Viktor Frankl's. And so, so that's the work I'm doing, Dan. And, and I think, you know, the trauma informed stuff that I was saying, like, this is the thing, like you need people that get it, having conversations with people like you, having close people who are doing this work, having therapeutic spaces that are safe and good and keep pushing me to be okay with ambiguity and try to find alignment in my own life. Like all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, that's the stuff that's, that's been the most healing for me. That's good. Um, Sadly, not the religious institutions that I have served. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's important. You talked about it. I talk about it a lot on the show, too, is just the healing process, therapeutic processes. Mm. And because there's a lot, right? There's a lot to unpack. And there's shit that you unpack that you didn't even think, well, that wasn't trauma. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, that was traumatic. And how do you know, you know what I'm saying? And then you see some of that shit yeah. pop up in, in your uh, in your kids and you're just like, oh, OK. All right. Yeah. Um, at yeah. least for me, I do. I'll speak for myself and, and my own family yeah. and, and stuff that that challenges me to want to do better um, and, and to break some generational curses uh, mm. that have been, you know, hanging on. I mean, I believe in uh, uh, epigenics, not eugenics, epigenics um, yes. and uh, how the, yep. right, you know what I'm saying, uh, how that yes. shit gets passed on in DNA and uh, and, and whatnot. So um, I think that's I think that's great. Um, let me ask you this. I know our time is nigh and I could talk about this stuff forever. I was great to have you on the show finally, because I think you, you are able to present a space that, because one of the one number one things that I get a lot from, particularly from white folks and, and white women for that matter is mm -hmm. like, you know, how do I go next? And I like that you haven't absolutized. This is what we need to do. I think that was one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, it's one of the reasons why I will, I will never publish with a Christian publisher again, but because mm -hmm. there's always this sense of we want, like, you can talk all the shit you want. World's coming to an yeah. end in two weeks, but damn it, those last two chapters better fucking tell us how we're going to fix it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. And I'm just like, look, I'm here sounding the alarm. I don't have a solution. And I like that you you you, you didn't come across as saying like, yeah, I got the answers. I got that. I, I like, you know, I like that. Again, I think that shows maturity and it pays mm -hmm. adherence to the complexity of who we are, right? As a society, as human beings, none of us, yeah. all of us have the little sins and demons that we do. I, I tell everybody, look, even, even the Pope sneaks a few hard mics every now and then. So it's just like, shit, let's not, yeah. let's not be... <laughs> Let's not be, you know, uh, ignorant of what is going on out there and what is happening. Um, but so I appreciate well, and, that. And Dan, I think we white women can be the worst because we're like <laughs> you said. so close to the power. I, I'll say it. You know, I'll say it. And and we want to, to have that control and like achieve the power. And we've internalized the the sort of patriarchal ways of doing business and to fight that. And, and that's one of the things that I've learned by 
both my own failures and successes as well as like just people people yeah. like you that keep pushing me um is and and this is what my therapist my therapist said she said this to me yesterday she's like michelle you need to grow your muscle to be okay with ambiguity the world is not always going to work in your favor especially if you're pursuing liberation and once you're okay once you grow that muscle of ambiguity she, she's like that can take you the whole next level of what it means to be liberated. And um, so, yeah, I just want to say that, and, and people who have experienced ambiguity, yeah. right? Like, and this is my question, Dan, we didn't get into this, but I was, one of the things I was thinking about in prepping for this was the closeness between oppression and liberation. And I don't want to say you have to go through suffering to be liberated, but like, what is the, that relationship between uh, uh, generationally oppressed, whether it's, race or gender or class, whatever that is, and then actually understanding real liberation. Because I started with evangelicals don't know the way they're held captive because their antecedents are uh, not about oppression. Yep. I'm <laughs> glad you said that, Michelle. I'm I, I'll make this comment and I won't I won't say any of the names. I was recently approached by an organization uh that had asked me to do some stuff on youth and prison stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I sat on it for a couple of days. You probably know who exactly who this is. And I, I but I, again, I, you know, I ain't gonna put nobody too much on blast. Um, yeah. and they were like, oh yeah, we want you to do some stuff on like youth and the prison industrial complex, all this stuff like that. It's a conference they're having. Um, and so I was, you know, I sat on it a couple of days and I went back and I looked up the website and everything and started looking at board of directors and people who were on staff. And I'm like, this just looks white. I mean, you know what yep. I'm saying? And yep. I'm not saying that white folks haven't gone through aspects of it, but I'm just like, who do you have on your team? Like if you've been around, especially if you say you've been around for a decade or more, who have you brought that you've worked with who that is now in a position of power that can help lead and change your organization in a way yep. that is unfamiliar to you? Like, and mm -hmm. I just didn't see that. So I was just, I respectively just, you know, you know, I was like, I declined and stuff. Cause I'm just like, no, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that stuff anymore. Plus they weren't even paying and yep. shit, man. That's the other thing is just like, look, if y'all oh niggas going to be out there. You're hiring a black man and you're not going to. Right. Me. That was, and that was my first question. It was just like, what, what's the payment? Like what's, what's the honorarium? Yep. They're like, oh, we don't have the budget yep. for that. We can pay for you to come to the conference and they'll have a meal card. And I'm like, man, the fuck? You know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I'm pretty Your sure. Time is valuable. Exactly. Because yep. I'm pretty sure, Michelle, when you went to go get your PhD, um, were those classes free? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they weren't, but maybe they were. You know, maybe they, you didn't have to pay a dime for them. Oh, <laughs> my. And we make God. so much money now as educators. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> we won't go there. So, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think that there's a, a disconnect. Again, I'm not saying that white folks can't be part of it but i've said this over and over and over again it's like white folks can't lead the the the, the movement yeah. uh for for, yeah. for restoration they just can't right. and when i see organizations yeah. that are still doing that i'm just like i'm, I'm on to the next you just you're just colonizers yeah. right and so yeah. uh and i know that's harsh to some folks i don't think it's harsh to most of my listeners uh but the people you know who would you know need to hear that they ain't gonna be listening to this shit anyway so it, it don't matter um <laughs> Where can folks find you, Michelle? They want to bring you out and they want to pay you and they want to do it right. Where can, where can they reach out and get a hold of you? Well, my email is just my name, Michelle Clifton seven at iCloud.com. 
Okay. Probably the easiest way. I don't have a website or anything. Maybe someday. Hey. <laughs> or social media. I can be found at Michelle Clifton on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Well, I would definitely put those in the show notes. And I and I feel you on that because when people ask me, like, where can you find me? I'm like, look, I got a website, but I don't really even keep up with my social media. Like, I logged on to Facebook the other day to find something. It was just like, you have 200 and some odd notifications. And I'm like, shit. I don't know what to tell you anymore, man. Um, but thank you so much uh, for coming on and sharing this. I think we've just scratched the surface. I feel like I have so many more questions, uh, but I'm going to definitely have you back uh, and to talk more. I'd I, I think, love to do it again, Dan. Yeah. No, and I think well, I want to talk more about this, this because I don't think enough people, I feel like we collectively as a society read the Michelle Alexander book and then we're like, all right, we're good, right? We're good. We yeah. saw the documentary. Yeah. We're good. So thumbs up. Yeah. Kim Kardashian and Kanye and Donald Trump, they fixed it, right? They already did the prison abolition. We're, we're, we're good, right? Um, yeah. And we're not talking about, you know, especially even the no bail thing that just got rejected here because yeah. the, the, the right, the conservative right went yeah. out and scared everybody thinking that, oh, it's the purge law. And I'm just like, Dude has yep. nothing to do yep. with that shit. Like, it's disturbing. Yes. Absolutely disturbing. Absolutely. So I want to talk more about that in specifics. Yes. Um, so I'll definitely... Violent, can we talk about violent crime, too? Because that's oh, please. the key to abolition. Please. please. Let's go there next time, Dr. Hodge. Absolutely. Absolutely, <laughs> Michelle. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate you. Thank you, Dan. Likewise. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode.